Thank you, Margarita. We're continuing this morning in our study of the book of Acts, this narrative of the early development of the Christian movement, the Christian church, and now we come upon Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11, and we're going to take a look together at this story and draw a couple of lessons from it. And so let's bow our heads in prayer and ask for God's help. Jesus, we're hopeful, we're hopeful that the next moments that we'll share together will be profitable, not a waste of time, uh, not even merely an enjoyable time, but dare we ask, perhaps a life-changing time. We know you can do that because what we're looking at and what we're listening to is not just human words, but the living and eternal word of God, not just a human voice, but the very voice of God. And so we come to you with trembling and with a posture of servants seeking to hear from you. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Help me in my weakness, O God, and help us together and do this for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What are you like when you're hungry? I mean, like, really, really hungry. Some of us get ornery and a little cranky. You know the word. You get hangry, right? Anyone here like that? You know, like sort of, gosh, really late to dinner hangry, getting mad at everyone hangry, right? Get out of my way hangry. Some of us are like that. Others of us, when you're hungry, you you start to almost be able to see the food right in front of you. Uh, that that mouth-watering barbecue that you're after. You can almost reach out and and touch and and, and grab that bowl of kale and quinoa. No, I'm just, I'm trying to help some of you out here, right? You can almost just see the mirage in front of you, and you want to eat right then and there. It seems the Apostle Paul sort of fit into that latter group there. It was around noon one day, and Peter was praying on the flat roof of a home in the city of Joppa. But he got hungry, and while he was waiting for lunch to be prepared, he began to have this vision that was sent from God. And it had a little bit to do with his appetite, you see. He saw something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, sort of like a big picnic blanket. And on that sheet, we're told, was were all kinds of four-footed animals, reptiles, and birds. And then, chapter 10, verse 13 tells us, a voice said the most shocking thing, get up, Peter, kill, and eat. Perhaps you say, why so shocking? What's the big deal there? And the reason why this is shocking is that you have to remember that Peter is a faithful Jew. And Jewish laws prohibited the eating of certain kinds of foods. For example, Leviticus 11 lists off clean animals that could be eaten by God's people. And then also unclean animals that you could not eat. So fish was listed as clean, but shellfish and squid are not. Sheep, 
Goats, cattle were clean. You could eat those. But horses, camels, not sure why you would eat a camel, but camels, (laughs) rabbits were unclean. Ducks and quail, clean birds eat away, but eagles, owls, hawks, along with reptiles like chameleons, geckos, unclean, don't eat. By the way, uh, they also list off rats, too, as being unclean, and of course, the entirety of the human race is amen, you know, tell me something I don't know, right? And you might ask, well, why did God do this? Why these laws? Why these rules? Why these restrictions? You see, God wasn't just teaching his people to be picky eaters. God was teaching them that they were a special people set apart from the rest of the world. And so for a time, a temporary time, he put these dietary restrictions on them just so that they would know that they eat differently, they live differently, they believe differently from other people because they have been loved differently by a different sort of God. He was also teaching them by their eating little lessons about cleanness and uncleanness, not ultimately about foods, but rather something moral and spiritual deeper inside. He wanted to teach them that they too were unclean because of their sin. They needed a cleaner, a savior, a God who could finally purify them something they could not do for themselves. And so he gives them list after list of clean things and unclean things, and he really holds it to them. But of course, he only was going to do this temporarily for a time to instruct the hearts of his people. But of course, their hearts were like our hearts, and they responded with, well, religious self-righteousness. It developed into a little bit of a superiority complex. Well, hey, here, we're eating clean things, so it must mean we're clean and you're not. Uh, Those foods that you're eating are unclean and, well, so are you. And so you can understand why it might seem shocking to Peter as he's confronted with this large picnic blanket, as it were, with what was apparently a mix of both clean and unclean foods. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied when he was invited to eat. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. To which the voice replied, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. You see, God was indicating in this time that the time was up for that temporary lesson. The Savior had finally arrived, the one to whom these clean laws had pointed, the one who actually would make them clean, was finally here, died on the cross, and by faith could make you clean indeed. Washing away your sins and all your impurities, no more need for this object lesson, you see, these rules, these practices, and regulations Jesus himself indicated so early. We hear about this in Mark chapter 7. When Jesus reminds the people, no, what what really makes you unclean is, is, is not what goes into your mouth and through your stomach, but rather what's in your heart. And in that place, Mark left this note to us and tell us that by saying so, Jesus declared all foods clean. But old habits die hard. 
And so Peter resisted. Three times, in fact. God welcomed him to eat, saying, no, you're free to eat. No, Lord. No, you're free to eat. No, Lord. Really, Peter. (laughs) You're free to eat. God was relentlessly trying to teach Peter and through Peter the entire church a crucial lesson that not only were non-Jewish foods clean, but also non-Jewish people were clean as well. God welcomes people of all ethnic and cultural backgrounds into his family without distinction and discrimination, and therefore so should you and I. Well, the vision ends, and just as Peter is starting to wonder what this vision means, the doorbell rang downstairs. Well, not the doorbell. They didn't have doorbells, but you get what I mean. Downstairs, they're standing at the gate were three Gentiles, people whom God was immediately calling Peter to put into practice what he had just been taught. You know, sometimes God's got a delay between what you learn and when he tells you to put it into practice. Here in Peter's case, it was instantaneous. Go downstairs. Love you some Gentiles, dear Peter. They apparently had been sent by a man named Cornelius, also a Gentile, who was a centurion, sort of a a middle-ranking Roman officer in the city of Caesarea. Chapter 10, verse 2, that's not printed in your bulletin, describes Cornelius and his family as a very religious group. Uh, They were devout, we're told, God-fearing. Cornelius gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. And yet apparently he still needed the grace of God to be fully welcomed by God. He was what might be called a God-fearer, sort of a technical term of Gentiles, non-Jews, who maybe started attending synagogue, maybe started listening to God's word, starting to pray and relate to God and yet had not fully established a covenant relationship with Israel's God. And so just the day before, Cornelius, Cornelius, we find out, had received a vision from God just one day before Peter's own vision, instructing him to send some men to Joppa to bring back some man named Peter. Amazing how God was orchestrating these two men's lives and pulling them together for this amazing turning point in the history of the Christian gospel. And so Peter, together with this entourage, journey the next day over to Caesarea. There they meet Cornelius, who had gathered not only his family, but a crowd of people together with them, ready and eager to listen to Peter and what he had to say from the word of God. Peter proceeds to preach about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. And just as he was preaching, God pours out the Holy Spirit upon these Gentiles. Everyone in the room was surprised, shocked, amazed that they too would receive God's Spirit just as Jewish believers had. As it says in verse 45, chapter 10, the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on 
Gentiles. Peter recognized what God had been doing and so ordered that they would be baptized to symbolize and formalize all that had just taken place. God had welcomed them into his family. Criticism, of course, rose up as it happens to when radical new horizons are broken into and Jewish Christians from Jerusalem and the region of Judea far off had heard about this news and were skeptical. Maybe we might say understandably so because God had never done this work quite in this sort of way rescuing from him for himself a large swath of Gentiles, people that had not been marked out from the beginning as part of the people of God, and yet now God was extending his arms even further because that's how big his heart is, his generous heart of grace. His arm is never too short to save. His grace never runs out. It runs even forward and to every Gentile to the ends of the earth. Peter meets the skepticism with patient explanation. He gives them a play-by-play as we hear in chapter 11. As we learn that the people hear this, the Jewish Christians, verse 18, when they heard this, they had no further objections. They praised God saying, well, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. We learn here is Cornelius and his non-Jewish Gentile ethnicity was absolutely acceptable to God. It was not a barrier to the full welcome of Christ into his family. There was no need for Cornelius or any other non-Jewish person to become more Jewish in order to become right with God or in order to be fully embraced by God's people. A new age of the gospel had finally dawned. So what does this have to do with you and me? What are some lessons that we can draw from this? I want to pull out three things briefly, and then we'll have some Q&A to talk about it a little bit. Number one, authentic Christianity. Second lesson, number two, cultural impartiality. And thirdly, perplexing community. Authentic Christianity, cultural impartiality, and perplexing community. First of all, authentic Christianity. What is it that makes a Christian a Christian? Do you know this story gives us a a little bit of an answer to that question? As we encounter this individual named Cornelius together with his family, who evidently was very much religious, A good man. I mean, you look at the list of things that were to his credit. He was religiously devout. He feared God. He was generous to the poor, gave generously to those in need. He prayed to God regularly. And yet, he was still counted among those who had not fully grasped the grace of God. It's a humbling thing, but we really need to wrestle with this even for a moment here today. Beloved, do you recognize what this is telling us? That you can be and do all those things and yet not be a Christian. 
You can, in fact, be very religious and active in religious ceremony. You can even fear God and have a genuine sense that I am accountable to some being maker greater than myself. You could be the most effective activist on the streets, giving generously to the poor, whether vocationally or out of every ounce of your energy and spare time. You can even pray to God regularly and yet still be missing the heart and the essence of what it is that gives a person new life in Christ. What it is that gives them the ability to say, my life has been changed by God's grace and I bear the name of Christ. Well, what are those things? What was it that was still yet missing in Cornelius' life that he needed from the Apostle Peter, really from God through the Apostle Peter, his instrument in his conversion? What was it? Well, number one, Jesus. Wasn't this what Peter preached when he spoke to Cornelius and his family, beginning with the life of Christ and moving through to his death and even speaking of his resurrection? We see in verse 36, you know, the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. We are witnesses, verse 39, of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. Verse 33, all the prophets testify about him. This is Jesus, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his Name The first thing that Cornelius needed, that we need for authentic Christianity, is Jesus. Secondly, what Peter brings and offers to them is repentance and faith. In the verses that I just read there, verse 43, we're told this, all the prophets testify about Jesus that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Do you long for forgiveness for all your sins, past, present, and future? All you need to do is to believe in Jesus, to put your trust in him, to bank your life on him. And of course, by speaking of the need for forgiveness, you're also acknowledging that you are a sinner. You need to come clean with God too in that way. That's what the Bible calls repentance, which is why in chapter 11, verse 18, The Christians in Jerusalem exclaimed that, yes, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Apparently, this was part of the faith of Cornelius. And thirdly and lastly, what we find that Cornelius needed that he didn't have even as a religious person in his prior life was the Holy Spirit. We see in verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words about Jesus... The Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. It's an amazing thing. This isn't just sort of a supernatural trick show that God poured out in front of the people. You know what God gave them? What God gave the Gentiles? You know what God gave as the greatest gift to Cornelius and his family? Do you know what it was? Himself. God offers 
himself to you, dear friends. This is the goal and the aim of our salvation. It's not just a less anxious mind and a little bit of peace, that he, though he can and will give you that. It's not just an unburdened conscience, freedom from guilt alone, though he will give you that. It's not just that. It's not just the blessings of community in your loneliness by bringing you into his family, though it is that as well. But friends, what he most gives to you, as indicated by the gift of his Holy Spirit, is that God gives you eternal, unbreakable communion with the God of the universe, which is what every single one of us was designed and built for, which is what every single one of us will find all of our happiness, satisfaction, and meaning in God himself. So friend and author Rankin Wilborn has recently written, the greatest treasure of the gospel, greater than any other benefit the gospel brings, is the gift of God himself, communion with God, the presence of God in your life. This is what the Christian faith offers you and me. And so I want to ask if maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you've been unpacking what it means to be a Christian, or you're listening, or maybe a friend of, you brought, friend of yours brought you here. I just want to tip you off to this and help you to understand this in your journey. Let me do it in the form of a question. What are you most looking at? Uh, what is it that you're gauging your understanding of the Christian faith by? And, and I want to point you to the things that Cornelius needed, that we all need, and that is first to, to investigate Jesus, to know what he did in his life and his death and his resurrection, then to know that what you need to do is to make him personal, receiving his gift of life and forgiveness, his communion with you. That's repentance, admitting your sin, admitting that you can't save yourself, and receiving him by faith, banking your whole self upon the person of Jesus. And then thirdly, know that what you're being called into is a life with God. To have God himself live in you by his spirit. This is what God is giving to you in the Christian faith, in the Christian gospel. Is that what you're looking for? And I say this so that you do not make the mistake of deceiving yourself. That just by being engaged in religious activity, or just by coming to church, or just by giving to the needy, or just by engaging in prayer, that that itself is what constitutes the Christian faith in all of its authenticity. And guess what? Christians, you need to hear this too. When you look in the mirror and you identify yourself as a Christian, a follower of Christ, what is it that you're most pointing to? What is it that you believe most counts that makes you who you are as a Christian? Dear friends, take it as a word of warning and encouragement. Don't make it the good deeds that you do for Jesus. Make it the life in Jesus that you have through faith. Don't make it the prayers that you're offering up to him. Make it the fact that Jesus is praying for you because he loves you every day. Because he's given his life for you. Don't make it about your religious activity, not ultimately. 
or even the depth of the sincerity of your heart, that's not what's going to win the favor of God. It's only the grace of God that can win the heart of God for you. Dear Christian friends, do you know authentic Christianity as well? Number two, and secondly, the second lesson we can draw from here, cultural impartiality. We hear this refrain again and again in this passage, thus saith the Lord, chapter 10, verse 15, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This is the grand lesson that Peter learned, and he also put it this way in chapter 10, verse 28, not printed in your bulletin. You are well aware, he told Cornelius' family, that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. I should not call anyone impure or unclean. And of course, the primary point of application here is a way in which we engage and accept and embrace those of different ethnicity and cultural backgrounds than from ourselves. But I want to start off first by examining all the other ways that we also do this. Friends, are you aware in your heart, in your relationships, of ways in which you quietly, I quietly push people away or perhaps look down on them just a smidgen? Because you consider them unclean. It might be because of their income level. Maybe you quietly despise people that you might label as being poor. Maybe for others of you, it's the reverse. You sneer towards those who are wealthy. No matter their integrity or behavior, when you look at them, you're disgusted by them. Assuming the worst about them. Maybe it's different political groups when you look at other people that are different from yourself. If you're a member of this party or of that party, if you support this political figure or that political figure, I cannot simply just disagree with you. I must be disgusted by you. You are unclean to me. Or perhaps it's the way in which we treat people differently based upon their physical appearance. Can we just... Admit that we do this more than we want to admit. And I just don't mean in terms of romantic attraction. I mean the way in which someone that seems more pleasing to you, to your eye, might curry different kind of responses and kindness and favors and generosity of time. And sure, I'll help you out a little bit more, but not you over here unclean. Or perhaps different personalities. The person that you feel just talks too much, that irritates you just enough. The person that doesn't talk enough, irritating in their silence. Those Enneagram eights. I don't know, I just grabbed a number. Those are the bad guys. These are the good guys. Here are the good guys. But the rest of you, unclean. Some of us experience this on the other hand because you know how the world works, this matrix of clean and unclean. You feel those declarations and pronouncements over you day by day in your home, workplaces on the street, the way people look at you, the way people treat you, 
the way you're suspicious about how they're thinking of you. And you feel that shame, that sense of filth. You too feel that you are unclean, which is why every one of us needs to hear the prophetic word of the gospel in your heart today. Hear the word of the Lord. Do not call anything unclean that God has called clean. If you're in Christ, you are clean. If you are in Christ, you are clean. If you are in Christ, you are clean. And so, therefore, treat others upon the same grounds, the grace of God in Christ. Not as unclean, but clean. And of course, the tendency of our hearts will always be to treat those who are different as impure. And then, of course, we use religion and even Bible verses to justify it. Because after all, if God is grossed out by all the same people that I am, then I must be right. And so he humbles us as he humbled Peter, as he humbled the church. And of course, most of all in this realm of ethnic and cultural groups. And some people say, well, I don't know that I really consider people that are different from me racially, culturally, ethnically as being unclean. And yet, we must be honest about the ways in which our prevailing culture in this country, in most every country, has some groups of people that we deem to be, by the basis of their race or ethnicity, as being sort of inherently prone to immorality. Just sort of a little bit more deficient, can't really get it right. In fact, that's what explains the higher crime levels. That's what explains this behavior, that behavior, brokenness and deficiencies in this or that community. Inherent immorality or perhaps inherently more disposed towards criminality. And part of the history of the Western world and even of America, of course, is the ways in which we have collectively declared black and brown communities in particular as being unclean. And sometimes it's not just individuals as though we would actually and literally say, I believe that person is unclean, but perhaps it's their cultures that we're not so sure are pure or pure enough or pure enough for our children to engage. We say we accept people perhaps, but we reject their culture. See, Peter never said, I hate Gentiles. He just said, I don't want their food. See, just because a person is dressed a certain way, unclean. Or because of the way that they do their hair, may be prone to a certain lifestyle, we whisper to ourselves. Or maybe the way they speak, a certain accent that they have that we deem them to be a little less trustworthy, inherent immorality, perhaps criminality. It's humbling if we dare to be honest with ourselves, the ways in which we do this, and that's why we need to hear this word of the gospel where God shouts over our whispers of uncleanness and says, don't you dare call those whom I have called clean, unclean. They are clean. You are clean. Let's treat each other like we are clean. In Christ. Because our salvation is by grace. That no person is at all able to earn their 
standing before God apart from him reaching with his indiscriminating arm of kindness and favor, reaching in and through the Jewish community here in their first century, all the way out to the non-Jewish Gentiles around them, such that Peter declares in 10 34, chapter 10, verse 34, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and and does what is right. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Oh, that that would be the public testimony of more of us in the church. I once thought that way, and now I do no longer, because God has changed my mind about you. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. And so what would it look like then, church, for us in our own personal lives to show, this, show forth this kind of gospel impartiality in our attitudes, in our words, in our relationships, in our communal time together? It's worth considering, can we, what are ways in which our gatherings, our church, our practices, customs, our programs might show accidental, unwitting, incidental favoritism to some people of certain cultures, excluding those of others. Not the explicit messaging, things that we say, but rather the implicit captions to the picture, as it were, in the community. You are clean, you are unclean. You are accepted, you are not. What does that look like? And to flip it to the more positive, of course, what would it look like for the grace of God to reign in God's great welcome? As John Stott, the great commentator and teacher, said about this passage, the principal subject of this chapter is not so much the conversion of Cornelius as the conversion of of Peter. So, what would such quote-unquote conversions look like for us? What would it look like for you individually? What would it look like for us communally? Which brings me to my final point. Perplexing community. And very briefly, very briefly, what you'll notice here is that This mission to the Gentiles already begins to trickle out in different places. And we have this recognition in the latter part of chapter 11, beginning in verse 19, that something had stirred up in the city of Antioch. Gentiles there had discovered the grace of God. Antioch was the third largest city in the Greco-Roman Empire at this time, the main city in the province of Syria. It was a cosmopolitan Greek city. It had a large Jewish community, as well as people, according to ancient historians, from Persia, from India, from China. In fact, it had the nickname, the Queen of the East. So rich was the diversity of peoples in Antioch. And so it's a curious thing what we learn about the unique Christian community that developed there with this wild swirl of ethnic cultures that was discovered in the church therein. The very last sentence of our passage today, the second half of verse 26, says what? The disciples were first called what? 
Christians, Christians first at Antioch. You see, up until this time, the Christians were referred to, according to Luke in the book of Acts, as believers or perhaps followers of Jesus or followers of the way or brothers and sisters or saints or those who were being saved, all number of different kinds of labels. It was in Antioch that they were first named Christians, which means literally people of Christ. And why was that? You know, in the ancient world, if you were Greek, then you just worshiped Greek gods. That was normal and that was the expectation. If you were Persian, you worshiped Persian gods. You see, religion has always just been a part of a person's family traditions and culture. If you were Greek, you worship Greek gods. If you were Roman, you worship Roman gods. If you were Persian, you worship Persian gods. And so even when the Christian faith began to spread, when the watching world saw a group of Christians meeting together, and when they noticed that they were all Jewish initially, well, then they probably just figured this was just another form of Judaism. But what happened in Antioch? Well, when you suddenly have a Chinese Christian and a Persian Christian, or rather a Persian follower of the way, and you have then a Greek follower of this Jesus, and then also a Jewish one, and then also a Roman one, and so on and so forth. When the neighbors of Antioch began to see all these different kinds of people worshiping Jesus, not a a Greek group worshiping a Greek religion, and not Persians, Worshipping a Persian religion, but worshipping Jesus, it caught their attention. It was new. It was different. People worshipping outside the boundaries of their normal cultural norms. It was perplexing to them. The ways in which they came together of so many different backgrounds, it turned heads. It turned the world upside down. There suddenly wasn't a label for it. It's why they had to name them by the man they followed, the God they followed, Christ, and not by the culture whom they represented. And so they needed to be named Christians. Friends, just this one simple question, what would it look like for the gospel to so break down social barriers in our midst that the watching world in this neighborhood, Petworth, in Columbia Heights, Mount Pleasant, Adams Morgan, in Washington, D.C., would have no way of explaining it, no other way of identifying us except to say, well, no, that's not just the folks that have the black folks and that has the white folks and that has the Korean dude up front and the other guy and this guy and that. No, They're Christians because they're followers of Christ. That's their primary distinctive. That's what sets them apart. That's their core identity, which brings us back to authentic Christianity. Do you, friends, know where it all starts? This shocking story of grace, a grace that makes authentic Christianity all about for us union with Jesus by his grace, not religious performance, not our piety and not even our good deeds and activism. Do you know this grace that welcomes you into God's family, no matter your race or culture, the way in which God loves you with gospel impartiality and calls us to do the same. A grace that creates perplexing community that's attractive to a broken and fractured world around us. Beloved, do you know this 
grace. God offers it to Gentiles, even to Gentiles. God offers this grace even to sinners like you and like me. Let's pray. And so we ask, God, that you would come and heal us of of all our gracelessness, our division, our brokenness, of all our fraudulent forms of religiosity that we might try to call Christianity, the ways in which we have not lived with gospel impartiality, and yet you love us so, you forgive us, you give us a new chance, you give us a new day. Pour over upon us your Holy Spirit and give us new life and heal us, O Emmanuel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand together.